There's this constant balance between how we're using our attention. Things have gone so far towards things from the outside coming in. We're constantly demanding that of ourselves as opposed to just acknowledging that we get to just be. That could be the unwanted distraction in our ears, on our screens, or in our heads. We've had experiences of profound silence when we're just so immersed in doing one thing. Turn deeply to silence, absorb the silence, find the answers and no thinking or talking. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, you are in for a treat with today's episode. Even now, remembering recording this episode, I just get filled with such a sense of peace and calm and beauty. Reading Golden was a transformative experience. It really changed how I view the world and my experience of the world. And then having this interview, oh my goodness, you'll understand once you listen, which I realize is ironic because this is a show about silence, but you are just in for a treat. It's like a ride almost. We talk about things like what actually is silence, the shocking role of sound and silence in hospitals, the concept of having a right to attention, answering emails. Should you answer emails? Should you actually not send that email? The incredible story of Jarvis Masters, why maybe meditation isn't for everybody, what we can learn from libraries, the concept of the deepest silence you have ever known, and so much more. Lee and Justin are just beautiful souls. I cannot thank them enough for everything they are doing for our world and our planet, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think about this episode. These show notes will have a full transcript for this episode, as well as links to everything that we talked about, so definitely check that out. That will be at melanieavalon.com slash golden. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life, Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. 
Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. 
Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all Beauty Counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is about a very unique topic, something, well, it overlaps with topics that I've talked about on this show as far as mental health and wellness and mindfulness and meditation and finding peace in life, but it's much more specific than that. And it's something that I think the audience will really, really resonate with, which is the concept of silence. And so what's really interesting leading up to this conversation. So I'm trying to remember how I was exposed to this. It was probably the author's publisher or agent or something, but I got the the pitch about the book. The title of the book is Golden, The Power of Silence and a World of Noise. And I was just an immediate yes, because (laughs) this is right up my alley. I can't wait to read this book. The cover of it was gorgeous as well. What's funny though is The book that I read right before reading this book was called Sentient by Jackie Higgins, and it was all about 
our senses. So it was all about sensing sound (laughs) and other things. So it was really interesting to go from that book, which was all about, you know, our senses to golden, which was about silence, sort of the opposite of our senses. But I think it's going to be more nuanced than that. Like we'll talk about in today's conversation about what silence really is and what do we actually mean by that. But listeners, I will just say that reading this book, first of all, it's a beautiful book. It's very expansive. And I am using that word very specifically, but it's very expansive. It covers so many aspects of what is silence? What is noise? How does that manifest in today's modern world? How does it appear in culture? How does it appear in different people's lives? The science of it? How does it affect our brain? How does it affect policy and you know productivity and work culture and just so many things? And it personally has had a very profound effect on my life, which I'm sure I'll talk about later. I've had a major reframe from reading this book that has affected me daily, literally daily. I just am so excited to be here today with the authors. Yes, the authors. So I have two people on today's show. I'm here with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. Thank you guys both so much, first of all, for writing the book. It's incredible. I can't wait to talk to you all about it and also for your time and for being here. I'm just, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, thank you so much for those kind words, Melanie. We're super happy to be here. Thanks so much for having us, Melanie. Really good to be with you. For listeners, it's funny. Right before this, we were having some technical difficulties trying to get all of the sound going, which is kind of appropriate for you know this being a whole conversation about sound. But so to start things off, I normally ask about the author's personal stories. But Lee, you had a request, which I really, really like this, to start things off to read a part of the opening of the book to kind of just give the audience a sense of what's going on here. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Yeah, you may hear some pages turning, but we'll just that'll add to the ambiance, perhaps. It's like being there. I love it. So chapter one, an invitation. What's the deepest silence you've ever known? You can trust the first memory that comes to you. No need to overthink it. As you remember the experience, see if you can settle into it. Recall where you are, what's happening around you, and who, if anyone, is present. See if you can summon the atmosphere, the quality of light, the mood in the air, the feeling in your body. Is it quiet to the ears? Or is it the kind of silence that comes when no person or thing is laying claim on your attention? Is it quiet in your nerves? Or is it the kind of silence that lives deeper still, like when the turbulent waters of internal chatter suddenly part, revealing a clear path forward? Take a moment to consider what might sound like a strange question. Is the silence simply the absent of noise? Or is it also a presence unto itself? I almost don't want to break the silence. (laughs) That was amazing. And I'm having flashbacks now to when I first read that because what I really loved about that opening to the book was it immediately pulls you into it and makes you actually viscerally experience what you talk about throughout the book. 
because I have my answer for what happened when I did that exercise. Oh, we'd love to hear your answer if you want to. I mean, share. We could all share our answers. Yeah. That's such a good place to start, Melanie, with your your reflections on it. What comes up for you? So for me, and what I love about when you ask the reader to do that, because I have the tendency to like overthink things, <laughs> and then you reassure us that it's just the first thing really that comes to your mind. For me, it's a few different things, but it's always been between words when talking to somebody and eagerly anticipating or wondering what they're about to say. Mostly it's been like in romantic relationships. <laughs> so like, like, um, <laughs> but the specific memories I was thinking of were on phone calls with a certain person and just a few key moments where there was a question asked and then there was an answer and just that eternity of silence between the question and the answer. That was it for me. Yeah. I'm super curious since you both have been writing this book, you know, and thinking about this so long, did you have that? Like for me, I read this book. I never really contemplated that question. So I had a very fresh unbiased answer, but you guys have been so immersed in this. Like, are you able to answer that? as if you've just been asked it for the first time or has your world been so immersed in this that you just have, you know, a laundry list of answers for it? Mm, that's a really cool question. Cause you know, writing this book has been like signing up for a curriculum in like the study of noise and the study of silence. So it's changed for, at least for me, my understanding of the meaning of silence. Like one thing we explore in the book is that the most profound silence isn't even always auditorily quiet you know, it's not always the absence of all sound and stimulus, but it's the absence of noise. It's the absence of anything making claims on the consciousness. So sometimes, you know, for us, I think for both of us, we've had experiences of profound silence when we're just so immersed in doing one thing. That could be on a crowded dance floor or, you know, running the perfect line through roaring rapids. It's not always what we what we expected. You know, for me, I write in a book about a moment of deep silence when my wife and I have twins and they were born just before the lockdowns in 2020 and had to spend a little bit of time in the newborn intensive care unit because they were born early, thankfully healthy, but it was a stressful time. And having a moment of just holding the two of them skin to skin in my chest amid all the nervousness and rumination and sounds of beeping bells in that hospital room, like just having this moment of such deep connection together where it was like nothing else was real. No other noise could penetrate. It's so beautiful. How about you, Lee? I appreciate so much your words that this, that the opening words bring you into the visceral experience. Cause that's, I think one of the big takeaways we got is that there's a big difference between what we might think the answer to this question could be <laughs> when we conceptualize silence, that it's, you know, did it look a certain way and maybe be pristine, quiet in that auditory sense, or maybe be alone. But really what we found in asking all these fascinating characters, neuroscientists, politicians, artists, a whirling dervish, a man incarcerated on death row, and many, many more, this question and asking ourselves this question is that it was really surprising. And that's really what gave the shape to this book. So my answer to that question, the one that wanted to be shared in this book, 
felt a little like that can't possibly be it. But the deepest silence I'd ever known also, also happened after the birth of my child. And it was at a time when I was in a cacophonous internal state of a postpartum psychosis. So many, many voices internally, unhelpful voices, we'll just summarize them as that, were going on yammering and clawing for the mic and the attention and the spotlight. But at a certain moment, I was asked a question, a really serious question from a psychiatrist who I think was trying to discern, like, what is the course of action with this woman? How far gone is she? What do we need to do to, to bring her back? He asked me if I'd ever lost my witness. And when he asked that question, immediately all those voices parted. And, I, and, and what became clear to me is I just had this incredible sense of discernment, this ability to discern what was true. And my answer was yes, but only once. And in that moment, I could feel something holding me, a presence that I would call silence, this quietening of that of all that yammering, but also something bigger holding me throughout that chaotic experience. And it told me that I would be okay and I wouldn't need to be hospitalized and my relationship with my daughter would be beautiful. And it is 17 years later. And then my marriage would endure and all these things were communicated in just like that. And that's the power of silence is that it's, it, it's separate from time. It's, you know, and separate from space. And we get transformed in those moments. It's so interesting because the way we all now have described our experiences, it's interesting that it seems to be both a absence, so an absence of noise and a presence, which is hard to hold both of those at the same time. Where have you guys landed then with defining silence and noise and sound. And you talk about that throughout the book, kind of the differences between those. Yeah. Where are you now with that? It was really a journey. You know, we, we both felt this intuition around 2017 when we were both feeling pretty despondent about the state of the world, just the state of the discourse in the world and how people seem to be stressed out, yourselves included, the state of politics, the state of the environment. And we just didn't know how we could make change that would really be durable and effective. And we both felt this intuition, like, look to the silence. Not just get beyond the noise, but turn deeply to silence. Absorb the silence. Find the answers in no thinking or talking. So we, we wrote an article for Harvard Business Review about this. And at the time, we were still thinking about the definition of silence really as mostly, you know, the absence of sound and stimulus the article did really well. It, it really got a lot of people's attention to our surprise because we thought it was a little bit out there writing about silence in Harvard Business Review. And, you know, as Lee mentioned, we followed the cookie crumbs and started interviewing this cast of characters about this question, starting with this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And, you know, the, the definition of silence started to emerge through these answers, really. I mean, particularly in talking with academic psychologists and neuroscientists, people who've studied the brain and human cognition and the nervous system deeply, we first came to an understanding that noise is unwanted distraction. You know, and that could be at the auditory level, it could be at the informational level, or it could be at the internal level, which is to say that could be the unwanted distraction in our ears on our screens or where we take in information 
or it could be the unwanted distraction in our heads. So auditory, informational, and internal. And we gathered a lot of research that we can get into, if you'd like, Melanie, about how all of these levels of noise are on the rise, like in some cases exponentially on the rise in our world today. And then we came to this understanding that that silence isn't just the absence of noise. Like it is at one level, it's a space where like no one is making claims on your consciousness. The place where no one is interfering with your perception or your intention. And then as you alluded to, there's this deeper level of silence that's a presence unto itself. This state of not knowing, this state from which inspiration and creativity, and even in some cases, a kind of healing can emerge. One of the most freeing things I think you talk about early in the book is how with noise and silence, just this idea that you don't have to have a responsibility to say something. And that is just so, so freeing. That's freeing. And then also on the noise perspective, it's really interesting how, because you use the word unwanted. So it, it really is relative. Something that's noise to me might not be noise to you. Like you, you guys talk about that, the leaf blower example, like somebody mowing somebody's lawn. Yeah, this acoustic. Do you remember his name, Justin? Right off Shankar. Yeah, he said that that uh, noises when someone, your neighbor, is mowing their lawn, and sound is when you're mowing your own lawn, and music is when your neighbor is mowing your lawn. <laughs> so it is very much relative. We point out, and we're trying to make a distinction here between noise that is auditory versus sound, you know, or even music or all those kinds of expressions that we love so much or information in a neutral way, we would describe it as data. Data is, you know, good. There's nothing, or it's, it's neutral, you know, but the unwanted information grabbing for our attention and, and the mass proliferation of that information available to us, regardless of the quality is part of what we're noticing in terms of how that's affecting our attention levels. And then internally, you know, internal that's thought, and we love thought, but chatter and that destructive kind of internal thought of rumination and fixation, that which Ethan Cross, a professor of University of Michigan, estimates, we listen to something like 320 State of the Union addresses of internal compressed speech every day. So, And a lot of that is very destructive. So we're looking at the toll of these when it becomes unwanted distraction. It's no longer sound and data and thought. It's noise. On any of these fronts, I am so fascinated by all of this, especially the the informational processing bit. No pun intended, because you say in the book that so to understand a person speaking, it takes sixty bits of information per second. But then we have an upper limit of around one hundred and twenty six bits. So what are we actually exposed to today with information? And what's really interesting, they often say like our brain that we only use 10% of our brain, which makes it seem like, like we would be fine with all of this exposure to information. But is that the case? Do we actually have a limit? Does it saturate our brain? It's a super interesting question because, you know, if we only use a limited portion of our brain, it seems like you know, now that we're dealing with at least five times as much information as we did a generation ago in the 80s, 
it seems like, well, hey, can't we just use more of our brain to absorb more of the information that like, you know, constant social media exposure and GPT-4 and <laughs> whatever it might be that's like providing this like limitless fire hose of information. But researchers on this, like Mihai Chicheks Mihai, who is famous for his writing about flow, the researchers in the science of attention and the mind have found that over millennia, there's really not evidence that human beings can absorb any more information. We keep running into that upper limit that you described, you know, so we can find, you know, different hacks for being able to manage information of our lives. But in terms of our actual attention, you know, like there's this way to check me high had, had described it that like, you know, we may be living in a world of more and more connection to all these billions of people, but we can only understand one of them at a time. I was thinking about how, like I mentioned earlier, reading Jackie's book, Sentient, about our senses. And what that really got me thinking about, because she talks about how we think we have like our basic senses, but really we might have 20 or 30 different senses. But also this concept that there's so much information that we're, we're not even sensing because we don't have senses to sense it. So it really kind of goes back to, you know, what is our, I guess, our mind choosing to, to take in and to focus on. You mentioned the increase of information and data in today's world. Literally what that actually looks like, like with the sound aspect, and you mentioned your experience in the hospital, how is that manifesting? Like, noise-wise. Hospitals today, for example, how have they changed sirens? How have they changed? What is that actual experience like? Yeah, we use sirens as a proxy indicator for how loud it really is getting, speaking again on the auditory decibel level. The estimates are that sirens, emergency sirens, which need to grab our attention. So that's a, I'll get back to this term, but a bottom-up attention grabbing thing. So it's from the outside, you know, in that needs to grab our attention. Well, that needs to be six times louder to get our attention. So that tells us our urban soundscapes are louder than they were six times louder for those sirens to pierce it in the, in the last hundred years, that is. And across Europe, we do a little better job measuring decibel levels in, especially in urban centers, but the estimated, the World Health Organization estimates that about 65% of the population, about 450 million people live with noise levels that are harmful or hazardous to our health. So there is a big toll. It's not just to the ears, really to it's to our cardiovascular systems. It's there's links to diabetes, there's links to sleep loss, which are pretty obvious, but now we know so much more about the downstream effects of loss of sleep. So there's a great toll on our ability to focus. So that's actually that top top down attention. That's where we put our focus. That's what we want to put our attention on. But with more and more things clamoring from the outside, whether it's a pop-up thing on our screen or beeping and buzzing in a different, in a hospital setting. There are all these alarms and sound bells, and you see why we'd need those with all the instrumentation, but there's so many of them that we now see our healthcare providers suffering from an alarm fatigue where that you know people just don't respond or you can't even really tell which alarm is it. One cardiovascular, some, some kind of measurement of the cardiovascular system had 86 different sound notifications, 86 different alarms, and it would take a savant to understand one from the other. So we've just swung in this direction of 
sound and information is more information as if it's always better. But as Justin pointed out, there's only so much we can take in and sort and discern. And there's a certain point where it becomes really quite damaging and tiring, exhausting, an unnecessary level to those workers and to those of us staying in in the hospitals. (laughs) Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. So it's so funny. The book I was reading last night is about AI and the future of healthcare specifically. And he was talking about the future of the hospital and how great it was because they're going to be able to start monitoring all of these things and there will be all of these alerts for different things. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) it's not good. So when I interview him, I'm going to ask him about this. You just got me thinking like, this gets to such a core message of the book. Like, you know, hearing about some of these devices within intensive care, care units that get to decibel levels that are like harmful as, as understood by the World Health Organization and by others. It's like one of the key themes that we uncovered in all this research is that we just don't really think so much about the costs and benefits of all the noise we create. Like we're talking about hospitals here, but like it's also like group emails. You know, Cal Newport, the computer scientist and productivity expert guru, writes a lot about what he calls convenience addiction. Like we just assume that group emails are always the way to go in an office setting because you know, any possible information that's useful to just one person outweighs the distraction to all those other people. Like there's not really a cost benefit analysis as to what the unwanted distraction, you know, causes in terms of consequence. Like that applies across society writ large, you know, whether that's like the impact of a 
you know, of a low decibel, high frequency hum of a data center that like causes people headaches, but produces some economic development, you know, or that example of the ringing bells in a hospital treatment room or an ICU. It's like, we have to think about the cost benefit. And to do that, we get into some of the science of like what literal auditory noise actually costs us. Going back to what Florence Nightingale discovered 150 years ago, we're discovering what cognitive scientists are finding about our ability to concentrate today. So that whole like AI in the hospital example, like, yeah, there could be access to a lot more valuable information that can in some cases be life-saving or, or cut the amount of time doctors have to spend or nurses have to spend on routine tasks. And then there's also this like way that like the excessive surplus of information can create as Herb Simon, the scholar in the 1970s put it, that surplus of attention create a, can create a poverty of attention. So many different things here. Well, so first of all, so is there a solution to that? Because, I mean, especially being in this biohacking sphere, I'm reading stuff all the time about how we're going to be monitoring so many things and all it's all about the data, like all the data. And one of the benefits of AI is that you know, as humans, we could never take in all that data and analyze it, but AI can, so it can take it all in and it can do, all, <laughs> it can figure out what's going on. What would be the solution there? Would the solution be AI that takes it all in and also can be really selective in what it actually tells us at the end? Like, I just don't know how to actually practically, well, not me, but <laughs> the world can practically get all of this data and get what we need from it without creating this overload of information. Yeah. I can see the prospects for AI, you know, reducing the amount of information that we have to take in, but I could also see the like specter of it creating a whole lot more noise. You know, we were speaking with a friend recently about how for her, the noise is like all the agendas coming at her. Like, you know, so much of the information that's coming at her, whether it's on TV or on social media or even just overhearing things out in the world, it's like not so much just the sound and stimulus of it, but it feels like noise to her because there's so many different agendas at play. Like people, as we describe it, like making claims in your consciousness, like having something that they're trying to convince you to do. And one of the problems with AI is it's kind of, you know, it provides a large language model, provides this like, you know, organized mashup of what's on the internet already. But people are putting things on the internet <laughs> for like various agendas, various things they're trying to convince people of. So like it might not necessarily reduce the, the number of claims it's putting on the consciousness. And it's like for us in this exploration, irrespective of what technologies come forward, like irrespective of what AI looks like, what the internet of things look like, what web 3.0 or whatever the new wave of innovation looks like, like what really matters is what we value as people, as a society. And is that value just the maximum possible production of mental stuff? Is it just more and more information for information's sake? Is it more and more speed and movement and the quickness of the computation? Or do we value the spaces of stillness? Do we value the uninterrupted time 
in nature or uninterrupted time where we could give our full attention to our kids. Do we value pristine attention? Because that's what silence is for us. It's pristine attention. Going back to the opening when I said my deepest moment of silence was like, you know, waiting for the answer. And I think that's because it it was pristine attention. <laughs> like it's the ultimate not knowing the answer. So it's just waiting and focusing for that, you know, that answer. And I think that's why it manifested as so much silence for me. I know for me, one of the most freeing things has been, I don't use any notifications on my phone for like, like nothing is allowed, like no sounds, no alerts, no anything. (laughs) I remember one time during one of the updates for the phone, you could, when it was for the do not disturb mode, but then it would give you an alert saying it was in the do not disturb mode. And I was like, what is the point? Oh, <laughs> like, no, I don't want anything. But speaking to that, so two things. One, you talk about this in the book, but you talk about how from an evolutionary perspective, we actually, you know, we get a dopamine hit from information seeking. Like it's like the one thing that's not technically a survival thing. Like it's not food or shelter or sex, which would be, I guess, furthering the the species. But we we seek information and we get that same dopamine hit from it. And I know I, I mean, I experience that all the time. I just, I love learning and all of that, but I just, when you're scrolling through all the, like all the content and social media, like you just want to take it in and it just never ends. A question about that, because you keep talking about things making claims to our attention and our, our right to attention. And I was thinking about that. So is that a right? What determines a right to attention. Like if somebody creates content, how is that impeding on my rights? Or is it just when they come into my sphere? So like on my phone, my TV, my internet, where is the rights aspect coming from? Well, I mentioned that top down, bottom up. So this seems like a good time to break that down. So this is building on the work of Adam Ghazali and Larry Rosen. They're a neuroscientist, psychologist duo, and they break these apart. So top down attention, that's what we want to focus on. That's what our, we're, you know, like this, we're having this conversation. My top down attention is on our conversation. That's where my intention is. Now, if I'd left all my notifications on and my family was out there calling my name and my phone was ringing and all these other things on, that would be bottom up attention. That's the stuff that kind of gets your attention. And we need that for survival. Larry Rosen and and Adam Ghazali point out, like, we can't just be focused on what we want all the time. You know, we need to know the saber-toothed tiger is coming out of the woods. We need to know that a tree branch is falling. We need to know when someone calls out our name. So there's this constant balance between how we're using our attention. The problem is things have gone so far towards bottom-up attention, things from the outside coming in, crashing in, and that that's actually a function, you know, so that that balancing is is part of our ancient brains doing what it's meant to do. We are driven for to find information, we're information-seeking creatures. So we're doing a combination of those for our survival. But currently, with all this bottom-up stuff coming at us, it's being taxed to an unprecedented degree. And all the neuroscientists we spoke with, Judson Brewer and Katie Devaney and others are deeply concerned about what is it like to have that 
that constantly being exploited, that ancient brain survival mechanism being, you know, being exploited like that. We don't know the answer to that. But the fact that we are having trouble with it is really, I mean, this is our, our brains doing what it's done for forever, seeking information, intending our attention, but keeping our attention open to outside things. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I had heard before that one of the issues with alerts and notifications is because it's like the equivalent. So like if you see that you have a text or message and you see that little number, it's the equivalent of evolutionarily like being tapped on the back or hearing a sound. You don't know what it is. Like you don't know if it's a threat or something good. So when you see that notification, it's like the survival response. You have to check it because you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Totally. That relates to you know what we were talking about earlier. Just briefly, I mentioned Florence Nightingale, how 150 years ago she was stationed in Turkey during the Crimean War, and she was made responsible for a British army hospital. And things that the conditions in the hospital, Melanie, were like so bad, like gangrenous wounds going unattended. And among the conditions she cited as most important to deal with was noise, which sounded crazy at the time. But she called noise the most cruel absence of care that could be inflicted on sick or well. And she talked about different kinds of noise. And like what you just talked about with phone notifications really linked directly to one particular part which is that she said the most pernicious kind of noise was the kind of noise that was like a conversation just out of earshot that left the mind racing, left the mind perseverating on what was said. And it's like, yeah, when we get, when we're in the middle of doing something and we get a text message ding, or we get a notice that someone responded to something we posted on social media, that's like exactly the kind of thing that she was describing. And to what Lee was just saying about the impacts of that, you know, what we now know is that she was describing the activation of the fight or flight response, which has real implications for cortisol in the body and our wellness across so many different dimensions. So it's like, you know, this idea of like a right to attention, a right to quiet, you know, we look at this in different ways. Like there's, there's some law review articles that have been written about the idea of a right to our attention and what it would mean to the, to have the right to not be spammed and so on and so forth in the, in the digital sphere. And also what it means in terms of like the right to an eight hour workday. And in, in France, there's been movement to create a, a right to unplug, you know, a right to not have to you know be tethered to our devices after hours. So like, as we think about rights, you know, I've worked in, politics for quite a while. I was a congressional staffer for a while in, in DC. And, you know, often when we think about the idea of like a right to healthcare or, or a right that would be a rallying cry, like it was often an art more than a science. Like it's a, it's a mobilization tool to talk about rights. And it can be something that we can work through law to, to make something real. But like oftentimes this idea, like a right to attention is often about like creating this cultural shift in our values so that we honor that something's important. We honor that pristine attention's important. And we honor that we need the the space in our lives to do things, to practice what you were talking about before, Melanie, with like exercising choice in our lives rather than just like doing what the algorithms in our phone or our email inbox is pointing us to. 
So like, how can we find different policies and also different personal practices, family practices, community practices to like make that right more real? Two things specifically I've done going back to the the notifications thing. So, so when I'm winding down at night, I turn off all social media. I would at least like look and see if I had messages, but I wouldn't read them. But now I just don't even open, don't open Instagram, don't open Facebook. Because if I see again that, you know, there's, oh, I have these messages, then, then it's like, I'm engaging that whole network, which we can get into the network stuff later. Also with emails. Okay. So this, maybe you can help me with this. Cause this is something that I've struggled with. You guys mentioned near Ayal who I've had on the show as well. And he talks about the role of email. That was your book, right? You talk about him and email, answering email? Or am I misattributing? Yeah, we do a little bit. I think we mentioned him somewhere. Yeah. He talks about shifting. Yeah, like we're shifting our attention, like every something like every 19 seconds and spending an hour getting back to whatever it is we're doing from all that interruptions. I think we just touch on his work a little bit, but go ahead. Go ahead. I I swear everybody mentions his work. (laughs) So I was like, oh wait, maybe it actually wasn't this book. So with email, for example, because one of the exercises you talk about, I think it's the exercise about finding silence with friends and family. And the first step is actually looking at yourself and how are you contributing to the noise And so even going back to like the email example that we were talking about with all of the emails that are sent. So historically, I've always tried to answer every email. I remember when I was interning in college at one point, a film production company, and the assistant said with email, if you get an email, always err on the side of answering if you're on the fence. I was like, oh, okay, always answer. And I and I feel like for me with email, I feel like I need to acknowledge people. So like if they send me an email that could or could not have an answer, I want to like tell them that they were heard and that they were seen. So for me, it comes from a place of like valuing the person that, that really I think is where it comes from for me. Like I feel rude if I don't send a like a confirmation that I got their email. But on the flip side, you could see it as actually just contributing to to more of the the data and the information. Like I could not send that last like thanks email. So this is a very specific question, but how do you guys engage with that with email? Like if, so if you get like a, an email where the conversation could be over or you could send like a final thanks, do you send the thanks? I love this question. You go ahead, Justin. No, I love this question because it, like it's a little thing, Melanie, and it gets to like such a big theme that we explored in a deep way in the book. You know, we don't want to give the impression that we're like against sound and stimulus and like, don't answer your emails. Don't, you know, don't practice politeness. You know, we, we don't want people to run away to a monastery. Like we don't want people to leave their lives behind and go seek deep silence. So like the stories we explore in this book are like, you know, how can we have conscientiousness in our lives? How can we show up for our responsibilities? You know, like, bringing that extra courtesy to emails and being responsive, but to do so in a way that like still leaves space for deep, immersive, renewing silence in our lives. So for me, like this whole question of 
why silence is so uncomfortable, like why silence is so scary. We have a chapter in the book called why silence is scary. Like we get into a bunch of deep reasons about the, you know, what Nietzsche called the horror of the vacuum and how in a recent study, like a bunch of undergraduates at the university of Virginia would rather like receive a painful electric shock than sit without their phones in silence for 15 minutes. Like there's this like deep, deep wiring we have to find silence uncomfortable or even scary. But what you're describing, Melanie, with the email and like getting back to people and meeting our social obligations, being a kind person, being an attentive person, is like one reason that silence is uncomfortable or even scary is that it means that we're not fulfilling our responsibilities. You know, it means at some level the the FOMO arises, like we're missing something. We're missing some information, but we're also missing some way that we're supposed to be showing up to feed our family. Or we're missing some way that we're supposed to be showing up to be a kind person. And like for us, we think it's possible within this world in which we're now living, like it is possible to find a balance yeah, we need to make some structural changes to deal with the noise, but it's also possible as individuals to learn how to navigate the noise and find these pockets of immersive silence. I love this. You'll notice, you know this from reading the book so closely that we're not very prescriptive in the book. We're really offering a bunch of ideas to kind of spark what's true. So I love this sparked with you. Having just received a little back and forth thanks, I want you to know the impact over here was warming because we were just getting to know each other. So I love that you wrote (laughs) that extra email, you know, that your value comes through. And that's part of it is just that we just need to keep keep attuned to what it is that we're here trying to, you know, be in the world, do in the world, tune into in the world. What is the impact? You know, we're, you know, we're, it's hard for us to tell sometimes our own noise and our own quiet, you know, where we're contributing to what. So sometimes we have to ask truth tellers in our lives, people we work with, and just kind of get a little bit of their take on things. Maybe sometimes we have to try, well, what's the difference? How do I feel in my body? Now I'm writing this thank you, but it's from sort of an obligatory place versus that spacious warming place. You know, we might have to pay attention to the signals in our own bodies and our own relationships and the tasks in order to tell what's true in this case. This is just so incredible. And like you said, I I know it's a very specific example, but I think it, I think it's a good example of consciously addressing. And like, I'm just brainstorming right now. I have two options I'm going to like think about later. (laughs) So one, maybe for people that I'm interacting with all the time, like my business partners, my assistants, maybe I'll just have like a conversation with them where I tell them I'm going to like stop sending those final thanks. And it's not because I'm not thankful. It's because I don't want to contribute to the information overload. Right. Assume gratitude, coworkers, you know, assume my gratitude. I can express it at a different time. That's exactly what we say is like have a conversation. This is the irony here as we're talking about silence and quiet and spaciousness, but we might actually need to have a conversation about that in order to create the space where it doesn't feel awkward. Like Justin was describing, it's not misunderstood. It's nice and clear and appreciated for what, what it's intended to do. 
Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E. 
with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Exactly. And then maybe I can do something fun with my email signature that will like talk about this. I'm going to contemplate this. That's cool. I love that experimental mindset you got going. That was one thing I love about the book as well. Like at the end, you have this nice recap. It's like 33 ways to find silence. And there's all of these different different things that you can try. And that's what I really liked is it's really, you know, it's so much about the individual. A, what we were talking about earlier about your perspective of what is noise and sound and, and silence. And then B, all of these potential things that you can experiment with to find silence in your daily life, find it with others. It's like there's a whole toolbox of things that, you know, people can try. So Justin, you mentioned scary and fear. And Lee, you mentioned the word awkward. I would love to talk about this concept about why does silence relate to fear? And then in particular, you talk about the different octaves of fear. So, you know, like like a lower octave of fear, which might have a negative effect on our constitution compared to a higher you know, octave, which is associated with awe and religion and wonder. So fear and awkwardness, which also there's like awkward silences. <laughs> so um, what's happening with all of that? Hmm. Yeah, this was a, this was a chapter of the book that like emerged as we were having conversations with people. And we realized this was, this was a, a persistent theme. Like, you know, we hear about awkward silence, but silence is, is something more than awkward sometimes. If you're the idea of spending a lot of time in silence, like that UVA study I mentioned about the students who preferred electric shocks to silence, to time away from the phones. Like sometimes it's like this urge to run away. And we do this kind of thought experiment, this feeling experiment at the beginning of that chapter. Like imagine you just committed the next five years of your life to being in total silence. Like, no worries about how you're going to earn a living, take care of loved ones. Everything's been taken care of. What's your first thought? Literally for me right now, I was like, oh my, oh, oh, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> that would be a lot to take on. I don't think I could do it. It's like, you know, it's so far away from our reality right now. And it's not something that we like recommend anyone do. But we mention it because, you know, we bring this thought experiment forward because, Pythagoras, who was like one of the great philosophers in history, who influenced so much of the rest of Greek philosophy and invented all these mathematical and geometric concepts and various scientific and musical concepts and theories that are still in use today, 2,500 years ago. He required his inner circle of students to spend five years in silence, to spend five years not talking. Did they really do that? I, I don't normally interrupt. But when I read that, I'm oh, sorry. But when I read that in the book, I was like, did they really, did they do that? Really? It's, it's documented in a few places that that was a requirement that he had for his students. And it's like, this is 2,500 years ago to study with one of the greatest 
geniuses in all of history, like as part of this mystery school that wasn't just like a scientific school as we think about it today. It was also a spiritual school. Like this was the requirement he put on his students as we, as we've studied in our research, that's what we found. And like, it's, we just wanted to understand, like, you know, irrespective of whether anyone's actually going to do this, like it seems a little unbelievable in today's world, but like, what would that do? to the architecture of consciousness. Like what would that do to the makeup of your mind? And in this chapter, we explore like through conversations and studies, how like we have to pass through these stages of fear and like crazy thoughts and like restlessness in order to encounter a kind of wholeness. And we look at this not just in terms of like ancient philosophy, we look at it also in terms of the modern science of psychedelics and what happens in states of like deep rapturous silence where that can sometimes be really frightening. And like how, you know, you've got to like peel the layers of the onion and like get closer to the core, get to the center point where it's possible to have these, these higher states of insight. Wow. I'm just thinking now, so in society, are there any rituals where things like this are implemented? I'm trying to think like growing up in school, I guess we did a prayer moment in classes in the beginning, like a moment of silence. How about on like Capitol Hill and politics? You know, there's really not, as you'd imagine. I was involved in starting a meditation program on Capitol Hill with former Congressman Tim Ryan, who was in the news a lot recently for the really close Senate run. He has had a meditation practice for some time, and I was involved with him in setting up a program on Capitol Hill where we had some members of Congress from both parties who would sometimes come to meditate. We had a lot of senior staffers, economists, and attorneys, and legislative directors, and chiefs of staff, and congressional offices who would come and meditate. I was a legislative director there in Capitol Hill for some years, and I was also a meditation teacher during that time. And it was such a cool experience because, you know, even though we think of this book as not like a book about meditation, we think of it as a kind of non-meditator's guide to getting beyond the noise. That experience I had teaching meditation at Capitol Hill was just like the power of what's possible by getting a room of really high-strung people, saturated in noise, together to be in silence for 20 minutes. Like the alchemy that can happen in that state. And that is similar to, is it the Quakers that have the moment of silence before? Or the Iroquois? Do they both do that? The Quakers sit in silence actually quite regularly and for long periods of time. And we spoke with a birthright right Quaker Rob Lippincott, about that experience as their spiritual meetings and their meetings for the purpose of business are both held with a lot of silence, very similar in their structure. And there's a clerk in there who is really sensing what's happening in the meeting. Everyone is understood, especially with all this deep practice of silence, that the practice is to be, to share that silence together and to speak only when what you have to say is worthy of breaking that silence, when it's really for the benefit of the whole and not coming from sort of an egoic place, <laughs> say. So you speak when the spirit moves you and when it's 
worthy of breaking the silence. So sometimes like imagine these business meetings where that similar structure is happening. The clerk is sensing how the meeting is going, but there, you know, maybe there is a disagreement, even a heated one where people start to get polarized and their conversations are rigid in their thinking and talking with one another. The clerk will call for silence and Rob describes this sort of that meeting where there's a, there's a silence asked by the clerk and everyone kind of just relaxes into that silence, being well-versed in how to share silence. And that tension and that fire and the disagreement will soften and someone in the room, he says, inevitably will say something that he was thinking, but better. <laughs> and they'll find their way through. They're also not afraid of just like breaking for a while or maybe not, you know, setting that disagreement down and coming back to it with more time and space in just life, you know, just maybe now is not the time to make this important decision because we want our decisions to be enduring. We want them to really come from our highest place. So there's a lot of, actually, we can turn to all kinds of different Tradition, spiritual, we talk in Jewish law, one who visits someone who's bereaved, who's grieving, is instructed to be silent, to not speak unless spoken to, to just hold that sacred space of silence for a mourner, to make it possible for them to be present in their grief and not engaged in small talk or even in any kind of talk that they don't want to be and to not run the risk of trivializing that person's experience with well-intentioned but sometimes awkward words. <laughs> so there are traditions to turn to. We talk about Nyepi, this annual day of silence. It's the peak in a in the, in the, in the Balinese calendar, a peak day, the new year, which is spent in silence with families going inward and being being quiet and not burning fires and not making noise and and even the internet and our cell, the cellular coverage is turned off for everyone to just contemplate their lives their good fortunes and this new year and their intentions for the year to come so there are places to look there are places where we believe in the arts, for example, as another place just in their day-to-day lives where we'll see the beautiful use of silence with music and concerts. And even when you've seen an incredible performance and there's just like that, and you don't want to clap because it's just so, you don't want to break that feeling that we're sharing. We know how to do this. I think that's the point we want to really want to get across is that this is an old technology. This is, you know, this isn't a hack. This is, we're born with this. This is an innate wisdom to being human, to being human together. And that we believe it's just worth putting our attention there and appreciating it for all it brings into our lives. Did you find any data, at least in the U.S., on the most quiet and the loudest day each calendar year? Like, is Christmas the quietest? No, I haven't seen any data on that. You know, there's different ways you can measure it, I think, according to how we study the meaning of noise and silence. You know, the auditory decibel levels of various places, which is just emerging. Some cities measure decibel levels. As Lee mentioned, you know, sirens are often used as a proxy. But then there's also questions like email traffic and, and that sort of thing, those measures of the informational noise. But it's hard to say. I mean, it is... You know, you mentioned Christmas and, and, you know, there is sometimes a kind of feeling like the seasons bring with them different kinds of energies, different kinds of levels of sound and stimulus. 
But even if there's less activity and fewer people going to work around Christmas and New Year's, sometimes those times can also mean an increase in the internal noise. Sometimes those are times when people are, for example, navigating family dynamics and feeling a lot of ruminative thought. You know, so that's like one thing we really want to understand in this book. And, you know, to some degree we use empirical research, you know, to understand, but like a lot of it needs to be subjective and personal because a lot of this we can only understand for ourselves. Like these questions of how different feedback loops of noise work in our world, like how noise in one sphere begets noise in another sphere and what we could do to understand those feedback loops so we could turn down the dial of volume. Why do you think libraries are somewhere where we have agreed as a collective unity or as a community to honor silence? Like that, that's really the one place I can think of where you go in there and it's like, it's quiet (laughs) and you feel like you're disrupting a social norm if you're loud in there. Yeah, most certainly. And I just, you know, I'm doing a lot of touring with my daughter of university libraries, and they're often multiple layers, right? And what they'll tell us is like, oh, and it gets quieter the higher you go up in these buildings. So the, the norms, I think, sometimes are different on different floors. But I, what I love about that is that they're being discussed and that there are norms. There actually always are norms about silence and noise they're usually just not discussed. It ends up being more of a default. So libraries are one of those where we there's a norm and we all sort of know about it, but in our workplaces, there are norms for how often, like, do you expect an instant response to an instant message? If someone calls, you know, that how does that go? You know, are all our meetings 60 minutes? Who talks and who doesn't? <laughs> there's norms taking place. So our emphasis is if we can bring those norms, whatever they are, those defaults into the foreground and discuss them and actually choose them, then we can shape the culture that we want to have in whether it's working together or in our family lives or in our friend groups or just with ourselves where we have, of course, the most control over what we do with ourselves. So we look at our sphere of control in the book and really start bringing in some practices to where, where you have the most control in the center of the sphere. And then one, one notch out is where you might have some influence. And that's how it usually is with other people involved. And then where you don't have control, perhaps it's just too big of a topic or issue, or it's a short-term thing where you don't have control. How can you let it go or even embrace that? However, briefly, like that might be when your neighbor puts on their lawnmower and you you know, just have to let it go or just celebrate as soon as they're done. (laughs) Celebrate the quiet that follows. Is it possible, because you do talk about making friends with the noise, is it possible to, if it is all perspective, could you in theory reframe every noise and not have noise in your life? There's a lot of research that suggests that really how we, the context we have about the noise that's going on, for example, if there's flights, you know, air flight traffic is often, you know, a burden to many of us and has some real issues. But if we, if we hear that it's, oh, this is about fire management or something like that, you know, or there's some kind of, you know, reason behind it, then we will be in a better place with it. We'll be more accepting around that. And the main, the main teacher in our book, Jarvis J. Masters, is on death row in San Quentin. 
as you know, for a crime, the preponderance of evidence, and we certainly believe he did not commit. So he is in this very loud environment. St. Quentin's death row is cacophonous. It is auditorily loud. There's just cement and metal and keys and yelling men and lo-fi radios and party beats all the time, 24-7. And men screaming at night with night terrors and all kinds of things. That's the soundscape. Informationally, there's so much information regarding their different cases and appeals and things that can become very stressful in a whole other way. And then internally, there's the reverberations of trauma in that space. Most people who are in there have suffered from severe abuse and or a dysfunctional foster care system or any number of things. So there's a lot of noise, but Jarvis has learned to navigate that noise And actually, to some degree, there's a certain amount of that noise that tells him things are going on as normal. And and if it gets too quiet in that setting, it could signal that something is not good is happening, you know, whether it's about a raid that's coming, perhaps with the guards raiding their cells, or perhaps even something else going on between the different inmates. So there's a certain amount of noise he, he welcomes, and he loves the silence right beside that noise. So yeah, we've seen some incredible, I guess, teachers, you know, seen and heard and learned from teachers who are constantly working in these high volume hellscapes to find quiet, which goes to show you that we can, no matter what the circumstances, find at least a little bit more quiet for ourselves. I loved reading about his story. How did you conduct that interview with him? We did that by phone. He is able to call out. So I set up an account and he's able to call collect. We put money into it. And then we were able to record that conversation. We had many, many conversations and we, I speak with him uh, about once a week and go to see him at San Quentin's death row periodically every few months. So he's become a really close friend to, for both of us. And we adore him and are doing all we can to help his appeal which is right now being considered. So he could be released any moment now. His case is on a judge's desk for consideration right now. Oh, wow. Does he do podcasts? I want to interview him so bad. I was reading. I was like, wow, he just sounds absolutely amazing. He is amazing. He is. He has. He does do so, He does do some podcasts. I think he just today was on 10% happier. So it's a, it's a process, but it, it, you know, so it's speaking of his meditation practice. So yeah, he's incredible. I loved what you talked about with him about how he was in solitary confinement and then what happened when he was taken out of that, which you would think would be, you know, a good thing, but the effect that it had on his mental health and wellness was not good. What, what happened to him when that happened? It was certainly what he wanted is to move from solitary confinement. He was on solitary confinement, the AC or adjustment center for 22 years, longer than any person in the history of St. Quentin had ever been. And he was moved to the East Block where he gets a lot more freedoms, more time on the yard, more you know access to commissary and phone and things like that. So there were some definite you know, this was the right direction to be heading in. But what he hadn't anticipated is that, and who would know this, moving from the AC to the East Block meant moving from a room with like all closed walls 
and including that front door to more mesh wire and openness and a lot more sound and stimulus. And that sound was so intense to his whole sensory channels that he had the the most severe seizure he'd ever had in his life when he moved from one to the other. So it took a lot of adjusting and he really had to amp up his own practice for getting quiet when he moved from the AC to the East Block. No, just reading about him was so powerful and how he does work with the other inmates and helps bring silence into their lives as well. It was really, really powerful. Yeah, as well as to our lives, actually, to Justin and I. I mean, he's he's a he's a wonderful human here to help others to find quiet. So amazing. It's really, really empowering. And going back to the beginning, I was the very, very beginning, I said that there was something from the book that had a profound daily effect on my own life. And it also relates to, I guess, empowering yourself. It's sort of the, well, I'll just say what it is. So (laughs) you talk about multitasking and we were talking earlier about our obsession with information and there's this idea of productivity, you know, maybe we can talk about GDP, but basically, at least for me, the thing that drives me and my, uh, what gives me worth and value, which is a whole nother topic, but I always need to feel productive. Like I always want to be maximizing like every moment. So I always feel like when I'm doing something, I need to be doing as much as I can in that moment. So if I'm cleaning the kitchen or something, then I need to be listening to a podcast or I need to be like listening to a book. Like I actually get anxiety if I do something, something where I could capably do two things at once. So like I said, like cleaning the kitchen, something, you know, physical where I could be listening to a podcast or an audiobook at the same time. If I don't listen to an audiobook or podcast at that moment, I feel like I'm not being productive. Like it's a quote, bad thing. And after reading your book, I have completely reframed that. I'm still working on it. It's still hard. I feel the trigger. I feel the anxiety. But now when I do things in my daily life, I'm like, oh, I can actually not listen to something right now. And not only is that okay, it actually could be a really great thing in my life, taking in more of these present moments. So it's been a huge reframe for me. So I just want to thank you guys for that. It's had a very powerful daily effect. Oh, that makes us so happy to hear that. You know, Billy, it's like I mentioned before that writing this book has been like signing up for a curriculum for us. And like my wife is always pointing out the ways I'm like always doing that. And like it's, you know, part of it is like, you know, Lee and I were both big talkers. Like we enjoy sharing. We enjoy listening to stuff. We love you know, being in the company of other people. And in, and in some ways, the, the ideas we put forward in this book are counterintuitive for us in our lifestyles. And like we wrote this in part knowing it's like what we need. And it's been like a curriculum for me, you know, almost exactly like you're describing cleaning the kitchen and like being willing to get into the silence or even just like making the space in my day to do what I know will change everything if I can just put away my phone and go on a little walk or hike, like without the phone, and just connect to the rays of the sun and hear the breezes and the branches. Like I know it'll reset my nervous system and open a whole bunch of new possibilities for my day, improve my mood. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much here to just about really paying attention. And I think you did such a beautiful job that 
the tense that like you're when you're feeling that tension of I'm washing the dishes, but I better cram this podcast and I've got to, you know, be improving, improving. And we're like, as Justin just confessed, we're guilty of the same, but to really notice when it's like that, when it's that contraction feeling versus when maybe you're doing the exact same thing, but it feels expansive or somehow, you know, wonderful, like it is bringing you quiet. So this is why it's like never as simple as do and don't or, but just to notice, notice when it's feeling that like, oh, you're just stuffing it in from that place of contraction or when you're really just expanding into something else and it feels nourishing. So I'm so happy to hear you say that because it, it can be those of us who really strive for personal development and we can sometimes get on a track of something that becomes a really quite, I don't know, almost brutal to the self where we're constantly demanding that of ourselves as opposed to just acknowledging that we, we get to just be and that's enough. It definitely feels expansive. Going back to that word visceral, I literally feel it. It feels really good to just do something. I keep using the kitchen example, but just to do something like that and just be in that moment and not, you know, be multitasking and doing other things. It feels, it feels very healthy. It feels very good. So like I said, I still get the anxiety trigger about it, but I just noticed that and, you know, continue to work on it. Is there something in both of your lives? Where do you most struggle now still to find the silence in a moment? I have three-year-old twins and a six-year-old at home, so it's joyful and there's a lot of beautiful conversation and play and, and fun noises and sounds of toys and lots of things going on in our household. And for me, like, you know, being really engaged in, in my work, needing to find the time to take care of all the responsibilities around the house and for the kids... Like, it's just a struggle for me sometimes to be able to find the time to step away from the sound and stimulus. So, like, one of the things that I've been working to do, something we lay out in the book, which is, like, how to focus not so much on the quantity of the silence, but the quality. Like, if I only have three minutes to step outside into the backyard or out in front of the house or to a quiet room, like rather than saying, all right, I need an hour break or I need to really just get away from it all. Can I focus on delving as deeply as I can, finding the most immersive silence that I can in the time I have allotted? And we explore in the book different strategies for doing this well. But for me, this is like the art I'm studying. That's great. I think mine is sort of on the other end, which is perfect. I have a 17-year-old daughter now and a husband and I stepped away from a lot of the consulting work that I had been doing except for just the with one major client to write this book and to really dive in and we this has been a five-year deep dive and so so wonderful and now there's you know we're pulling into a different phase shepherding the book along but but you know what could happen is all the rushing in of that work again and I'm not entirely sure that's the right use of me right now with my daughter as a junior, you know, here, she's only here for this much longer. And, you know, there's still lots to shepherd with the book. And so I'm trying to stay really tuned into what's the best use of me and not get busy. 
and not fill it. So that gets confusing in terms of relationships. There's a lot of, you know, relationships I care about and they're saying, Hey, how about this? How about that? And so keeping clear on, on that, I can get a little noisy with myself about those relationships and obligations. I can get stuck in to the habit of busy that I, you know, had before. And so I'm seeking out a lot of deeper moments with silence. So yes to the day-to-day, like Justin just described, I need that all the time. But what are some deeper dive, you know, weekend retreats I can do to really tune into what's the best deployment of me right now in this stage? What's the longest silence practice you both have done? Just, I know we were talking about quality versus quantity, so it's kind of the opposite question, but for me, it's, I've done a number of 10 day silent meditation retreats. So I don't know how many, I used to do those about quarterly for a number of years, but I that's not really my route so much anymore. Now I'm more inclined to do weekend retreats and I usually do more mind expanding retreats with psychedelics and entheogenic in groups where there's a deep practice, a lot of ritual and a great strong container. So that's my practice now. How about you, Justin? Yeah, I've done some three-day retreats in the past, but we, yeah, we really emphasize in the book that even though we love these immersive periods of silence, like we really don't want to recommend to anyone that they go on a deep, long, silent meditation retreat if that's not their jam, you know, if that's not what resonates. Because everyone can find silence in their own way. And we noticed, as I mentioned before, this is a kind of non-meditator's guide to getting beyond the noise. We've noticed in some ways that like meditation these days is this like, used as this cudgel with which to beat ourselves up. You know, like we talked to people who heard about this book who are like, oh my God, I should be meditating more. I know meditation is so important, but I'm not doing it enough. And we wanted to write this book as a chance to really like offer some license to people to give up those thoughts, to give up those worries, because it's not, it's not necessary often to really go on a long retreat or even have a regular formal sitting meditation practice. It's just to be able to understand like, where is there noise in your life? What's distracting you from what you really want, your clear perception, your intention, and find the ways to navigate that. You know, what does silence feel like for you? What does it really mean for you in your felt experience? You know, not just in your mind as a concept, but in your body, like what does it feel like to be beyond the noise and tune into that and find more of it in your life, however, however works for you. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold 
contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just gotta upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Yeah, I love that. And that definitely was a very clear message in the book. I find it really interesting, especially in like the health and wellness community, the biohacking community, because there is a big emphasis on mindfulness and meditation, which are very powerful and wonderful. But I, I always do find it really interesting that some people, it is like meditation specifically is, you know, it works for them. It's a game changer. And other people, it's that specific modality is just not what resonates and works for them. So this provided a much you know, using that word expansive again, you know, more expansive approach to finding what I think in the end is a, a very similar goalpost. I'm curious, when you were coming up with the title, was there ever a discussion about, because you just said like the non-meditator's guide to silence or something, was there ever a discussion about maybe using something clickbaity like that for the subtitle? <laughs> there were lots of discussions. <laughs> yeah, we thought for a while that would be the subtitle. I figured when you said that, I was like, oh, that sounds like that was on the... <laughs> <laughs> it's still our favorite unofficial title because it does get to the heart of it. And, you know, even meditators, 
think of themselves as non-meditators because they're not meditating all the time or they're never meditating as much as they hope to. And of course, it's never meant to be exclusive, <laughs> exclusionary, you know, but more inclusive because silence belongs to everybody. The concept of actual silence, like as a possibility. I thought it was so cool. You talked about this study, which also was in that sentient book that I mentioned about the guy at Harvard who went in the silence chamber. And when he came out, he said that he heard two sounds or a sound still, and he didn't know what it was. And they said it was his, what was it? His nervous system, basically. Yeah. John Cage, the composer, he heard two sounds when he went in the soundless room, one high pitch and low, one low pitch. And he told the engineer who was running the room and, and the engineer said, oh, that this room is working fine. The high pitch sound is your nervous system in operation. The low pitch sound is your blood in circulation. That is crazy. And I think this is really important and really freeing because somebody might think just approaching this work that they need to find, you know, the ultimate silence. But that example, you talk about the role of vibration and how things are always in motion. It sounds like, no pun intended, actual silence. Is that actually a possibility? What about people who are deaf? Yeah, we, we, we conclude that in a universe that is whirring and vibrating and churning and swirling that there may not be such a thing as silence. And so we can kind of let go of that really technical, you know, <laughs> definition, because we can't even in those anechoic chambers, like the one John Cage stepped into that day, can't really have absolute silence there. What that does is just sort of helps with the refraction of sound. It absorbs the sound in this room so that there's not extra echoes. So in this universe, yeah, maybe maybe in some small pocket in some other universe, <laughs> there's silence, but here, maybe not so much. And we kind of just embrace that and and move on to the experience that we're all having, whether we're hearing or hard of hearing or deaf. What is our experience of silence? Did you interview any people who are deaf? We didn't. We went through down that alley when we thought we were mostly talking about auditory silence. But when we expanded to informational and internal silence, it didn't feel quite as important to hone in on that one one aspect because we were looking at all these different areas of noise and those areas of noise are ones that are shared by all humans walking the planet it seems right now so so that's how we approached it but we did definitely learn a lot from those initial interviews you were going to add justin yeah i was just gonna add, i mean we one of the main figures in the book is actually blind cyrus habib who describes that in his relationship to to sound and a big part of what we're describing here is really that the silence that we're talking about as the golden silence is the silence that we seek, you know, and that there are these shadow sides of silence that include the silence of censorship and oppression, which we have a whole chapter devoted to, you know, and, and deafness in a way we could think about as the silence that a person is not seeking. You know, and again, we're not writing about this in a way that is like all sound and stimulus is bad. Certainly not. We love sound and stimulus in our lives. We love music in our lives. And, and at the same time, there's, there's something that as a society, in terms of what we value, in terms of how we've structured things, that we've come out of a balance where there can also be value within the empty space, the open space, the silence. 
listeners will have to get the book and read all about the concept of ma, which is such a cool concept. I wish we had that in our today's culture. Maybe I'll just leave that there as a teaser. So we'll have to get the book and see what that is. The other thing I was going to ask about was you had a few studies throughout the book. They were all fascinating, but in all of them, they were accidental in the researchers discovering things about silence. So one was about the whales in the ocean and studying their stress levels and realizing that it correlated to a decline in shipping. And so it had to do with, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but basically when there was less of the, uh, the shipping, there was less sound. And that was what was ultimately correlating to their their lack of stress. Was that what was happening? Yeah, that's right. That, that was found after 9-11 when the shipping industry came to a screeching halt and reaffirmed in COVID times at the very early end of COVID times when shipping halted the sound of shipping stopped and that stressor on whales, you know, was, was gone. And therefore the whales could hear each other and they can do their whale songs. They could find each other and their stress hormones were measured much, much lower for that short period of time. And then they went back up as soon as shipping returned. So fascinating. And then a second one was a researcher studying, I think, stress and different types of music. And he had like a reset moment of silence in between them and actually realized that was having the most profound effect, the silence, not the music. Yeah, that describes it as usually thought of as a control variable in studies. So it's just like a nothing, a neutral or something, but it ended up yielding the best results. And that was a huge study actually in the cardiovascular medicine and really shifted people's perception of silence as actually an area of study worthy of pursuing. And then these are just so cool. And then the third one was studying mice and the mother mice and their stress response and reaction to different sounds. And one of the sounds was like the sounds of their pups, which the researchers thought would have the most profound effect, but actually it was the silence. Although in that situation, Wasn't the takeaway that the silence was actually the most stimulating for the mice's brains? Yeah. Yeah. There was a study at Duke Medical School that looked at the effect of all these different kinds of sounds, like you mentioned, and it was the silence that stimulated the growth of neurons most in the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that's most associated with memory. So the finding that that research team came upon was actually that the act of trying to hear in silence activates the brain and promotes neural development. So when we actually pay attention to the silence as something worthy of our attention, that can regenerate the brain. And that was something really similar to what the the philosopher Pythagoras that we talked about before with the five years of silence told his students to like, absorb the silence to go as deeply as they could into the silence. So this is like one of the key takeaways for us from the science in this book is that there's something edifying about listening deeply to silence. And it gets back to what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode about silence is not just the absence of something, but a presence unto itself. Cause it seems kind of weird to like listen to an absence but like if we can if we can encounter silence not just as emptiness but as a kind of fullness it's like something worthy of our attention 
that was like the intuition we both felt in that moment when we felt some despair back in 2017 that led to this whole project. Like, listen to the silence, absorb it, and let it clarify you, let it, let it heal you. I've definitely, reading your book, definitely had that reframe about silence in my own life and my exposure to it. And it's so interesting because like with those studies I just mentioned, people weren't necessarily looking for that or expecting those results. I think it definitely speaks to just how much this isn't appreciated yet, like, or how we're just not looking in this aspect and how, how incredibly important it is. So I can't thank you guys enough for the work that you're doing. I'm sure people make jokes about this all the time, but (laughs) one of my initial thoughts when I picked it up was I was like, how is this going to be an entire book about silence? Like, what are they going to talk about? (laughs) Um, I mean, it just really, really blew me away. It's definitely been one of the most, as far as like all of the books I've read, one of the most, it just really affected me reading it. So I, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. Thank you so much, Melanie. That means that's just wonderful to hear. Thank you so much for receiving it the way you did so fully. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you guys. And I can't wait for listeners to check it out. And so I know Lee, you were talking about your future with what you're doing next in your life. Would you guys do another book or where's the path from here? Hmm. I love the idea of writing another book with Lee because just every moment of the journey was just felt so harmonious to me. Like it never really felt like work. You know, it's got to be something where like the inspiration really strikes. And I'm doing a lot of work on clean tech companies right now and, and working on some environmental policies and projects and, and new startups. So that and the kids are keeping me busy. And we're actually, our family's embarking on a little around the world trip. We're going to be taking our two, three-year-old twins and six-year-olds to Europe and South America for about a year. So keeping keeping busy with stuff, you know, and working on managing to find the quiet spaces within it. Yeah. And I'm feeling the call to continue to shepherd the book and get this, get the word out. And I love, thank you, Justin. I feel the same. Our, our co-authorship has been super blessed. And yeah, we just, yeah, I can't, can't imagine life without Justin and this process. And it's been wonderful. I keep working with chemists who are trying to get toxic chemicals out of our products and out of our environment. So that work continues and teaching dance and finding my silence in a loud thump and beat with a bunch of, <laughs> with a bunch of dancers around here and then enjoying my daughter while I still have her at home. That's my plan. I'm just a a fan of all of that. Well, the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for this conversation right now. And that's to say I'm grateful for what the process of bringing this book into the world has brought in terms of these opportunities to connect. Like for us, this was such a, This was such a like act of faith, a kind of bold move for us to write this book about silence. Like you just said, Melanie, like what could be a whole book on silence? Or, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, did we write too many words? Or, you know, some people say, well, shouldn't this just be a book of blank pages? So we like brought this thing into the world. And then it's like we've been able to have 
these meaningful conversations like this one that we've been able to share with you about what this means for different people and coming into this space of this space of, of turning down the noise, but also this space of imagination. Like what would it be like in this world of so much sound and stimulus if we could just connect to the presence, to the pristine attention, like imagining with other people? It's been, it's been something that's really given me a lot of feeling of happiness and gratitude. Oh man, I, I feel almost weepy. Thank you for your question about gratitude because I, I have and we have so much. This process has been amazing. And to be able to attune to one another and attune to silence and then, then attune to those like yourself who are interested in it, to feel that aliveness come through and to be in service to that. I am so deeply grat- grateful for that, even that opportunity. And so to any listeners that you've helped us reach. I'm so grateful for that too, Melanie. Thank you for lending your beautiful community to this topic. Well, thank you both so much. So for listeners, definitely get the book. And we were talking about this before the conversation, but it's available in all forms. The audiobook has a wonderful narrator that really, I think, embraces the the vibe <laughs> that you're trying to, uh, you know, create. So how can listeners best follow your work? You can look us up at Astrea Strategies. That's A-S-T-R-E-A strategies.com. That's where Justin and I combine our forces to bring contemplation into action. And you can also learn a lot more about what we're doing in terms of media and articles and things like that on that website. And you can find our book, Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise at Amazon and independent booksellers. And like you mentioned, the Audible book with read by Prentice Oniemi is really getting a lot of praise and worthy of it because he's just an incredible narrator who makes our words even better. And social media wise, as you might expect, we are not very active on social media, but you can find us on LinkedIn at Justin Zorn, uh, Justin Talbot Zorn and at Lee Mars. And we welcome your contact there. Awesome. Well, we will put links to all of that in the show notes. And just thank you both again so much for your work, for what you're doing, you know, for having these conversations. I mean, it's really having a profound effect on so many people. And even now I'm just realizing another layer of gratitude I can have like for this show and this podcast, because I was realizing, I I guess these conversations on this podcast are really the one time for me that I, like I turn off, you know, I literally don't engage in anything else except for this conversation. And I'm just understanding more and more why that's, you know, so important. But thank you both so much. This was amazing. I will be following all of your work and hopefully we can talk again in the future because this was really wonderful. Thanks, Melanie. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Melanie, for all the time and, and reading the book and sharing it. You guys too have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.